invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2, excuse me, we're going to be Jonah chapter 3, just looking at chapter 2, Jonah chapter 3, while you're doing that, uh, isn't that a magnificent uh, song of praise, I will rise and bow before my Lord and King, and uh, I I just noticed at the end, some of you just, you felt compelled to do something with that, and if I could encourage you, uh, as the Lord, by the, the truth and song, moves your heart. Just say amen. Uh, Clapping gets awkward. One does, and um, we're not sure where it's going. If you could just lift it up, right, right to the throne of God. Amen. So be it, Lord. Praise God. Uh, Verbal expressions of worship and and thanksgiving are absolutely God-glorifying, honoring, clear. And I want to encourage response to truth. Response to gospel, response to glory. And so uh, please just hear it in that way um, as we respond to all the good things that God has done and is doing for us. Jonah chapter 3, we've been going through this, uh, of course, in the evenings, and uh, I'm not trying to cheat here, trying to sneak one in on you. I think there's a a wonderful um, coming together of Easter truth and uh, and, uh, this story because Jesus himself claims it. And so we're going to start in Jonah chapter 3, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 12. So let's begin reading God's Word, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying the very same thing he said in chapter 1 the first time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Then let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, we're going to be again reading at verse 31. And we'll read through verse 41, 38 through 41, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Well, God in heaven, we come now eager to hear you speak. We thank you that it is Christ who speaks through his word, through his gospel. And I pray, oh God, that we would have ears to hear, that the spirit would be uh, merciful to us. That we not be dead and blind and apathetic to the great things of God. And Lord, do your work for your glory, for the honoring of Jesus our King. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you were to ask, uh, go out on the street and ask uh, the people you come across, uh, tell me what's the significance of Easter? I think most people in West Michigan will be able to say something about the resurrection of Jesus, that this is a, a Christian holiday uh, that, where we celebrate uh, Jesus uh, coming out of the tomb. Uh, even those who don't believe in the historical fact of uh, Christ's resurrection uh, will recognize it's a Christian holiday and, and uh, will not be afraid to tell you that uh, the culture is sort of taken this um, celebration for themselves. It's now sort of a family holiday. It's a spring festival of sorts. Uh, we, the, the culture has um, sort of saturated with pleasant, innocuous things, Easter bunny, Easter eggs, uh, that, that Easter is a happy, harmless holiday. Well, in our text this morning, we see that it is nothing uh, of that sort. It is, there's a sober significance to it. Uh, whatever might be said about Easter, it is not harmless. Easter contains a threat to mankind. It foretells a great peril, an existential crisis for every man and woman and child. And if you, th if you think that I'm overstating it, well, let's... Look at the story. It is a fantastic a story, wonderful story. Uh, a story of glorious grace for great sinners and, and different sorts of sinners. You have uh, Jonah, the religious man, the Jewish man, the covenant member. He's receiving magnificent grace because he desperately needs it. And then you have Nineveh, the pagan, wicked, idolatrous city. The Gentiles. Uh, this, this story really captures Paul's uh, words in Romans chapter 3 where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, religious, pagan, doesn't matter. Every man, woman, and child has fallen short of the glory of God, sinned against God, and, uh, and the law will be of no help to them. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so it's a story of great grace. But praise God, he is a missionary of grace. And that's where our story begins, a mission of grace. Jonah, uh, as the story begins, we find is, has been vomited out of the great fish onto dry land. Uh, this is a man who absolutely, undeniably deserved to drown. He deserved to go down to the gates of Sheol. 
uh, because he was a wicked, flagrant, rebellious prophet. He had great privileges. He had been told the, 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 the story. He, he knew his scriptures. And yet he just turned his back on all of it because of his pride. And so he deserved to die. But, but because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made him alive. Rescued him dramatically, miraculously. And brought him back from the pit of death, brought him to life. And God's grace to Jonah didn't end with Jonah there in the, uh, the pool of vomit on the seashore, uh, alive, rescued. God's grace was just beginning. A God, you see, didn't just leave Jonah there, but God immediately calls him again to the mission to participate in the purposes of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Uh, Mike Scout and I have been going through this, studying this together, and and Mike just made a great point. He said if Jonah's near-death experience happened today, he'd undoubtedly find a publisher and write a book about his story, and it it would be a bestseller. We love these kinds of stuff. There's a whole genre, right, in Christian literature of these death experiences. But... Mike says, God didn't rescue Jonah so he could write a book. He rescued Jonah so he could preach a message. That's exactly right. The call here in chapter 3 is identical to the call in chapter 1. Nothing has changed, not in the least. It's exactly the same words. Arise, go to Nineveh, proclaim the message that I have for you. But there's grace here. You see, God has not given up on this wicked man. God has rescued him, and God now uh, puts him back to the mission work. It's very similar to Peter in the New Testament. Peter who uh, denied that he knew Jesus with cursing. And then Jesus looked at him as Jesus is on his way um, in in the trial. And and Peter runs away weeping bitterly, absolutely confident that he has just forfeited every right to be a disciple of Jesus. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. And he reinstates Peter to the gospel mission. It's the same for the church today. In all spite of our failures, in spite of our unbelief, our fear, our worldliness, God shows his grace to us over and over, but it's not just grace to forgive us. It's grace to call us again to the mission. And so, verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's exactly uh, what we should have read in chapter 1, isn't it? In chapter 1, we read, so Jonah got up, went down to Joppa and found a ship and headed off to Tarshish. But this is how it's supposed to look. God says and God's people do. Uh, God said, go, so Jonah arose and went. And God said very specifically, give to them, speak out against it the message that I tell you. And the question that we're going to look at this morning is what message was that? What, what message did God give Jonah for Nineveh? Well, we read of it in verse 4. Jonah began to go into that city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here's this Jewish prophet entering this, this great city, uh, about 120,000 people, which is, which is extremely large for the world of that day. Uh, it's um, six, seven hundred miles from home. It is in the middle of godless pagan Gentile territory. Uh, it's noisy, dirty, smelly, 
and corrupt. Maybe think Bangkok. As far as different culture and, and, and seething with people, lost people. Jonah had never seen anything like Nineveh. And we're told that he began to call out. It's a strong word. He began to cry out. Think a street preacher standing on a corner. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days. It's not a long time, people. God is going to judge this city. Think of this. In the middle of sheer paganism, this Jewish prophet is telling people that his God, the God of Israel, is going to judge and overthrow this great city. Uh, Jonah speaking the word of God, you see, is, is bringing eternal reality into the, the busy, everyday life of this wicked city. He's speaking a message about a holy God and an impending judgment upon Nineveh for its sin. It's a wonderful reminder here of what gospel preaching does. You see, it, it breaks into the immediate interests and activities of life with the reality of God. People are busy. They're busy working. They're busy shopping. Uh, they're busy entertaining themselves. They're busy with family. They're very busy. Just look around you. And their vision is like this, right? We're just thinking about and worrying about and talking about things that are happening right here and right now with no thought to eternal things. No sense of, of eternity that is, that is just right ahead. And so gospel preaching is meant to be a message from God that breaks into the, the, the busyness and the blindness of everyday human life. Colin Smith says, authentic gospel preaching always engages people with eternal issues. It lifts our horizons from the immediate interest of our lives to the imminent and overwhelming reality of eternal life or everlasting destruction. It's one of the, if, if you're going to talk about a crisis in preaching today, this would be very close to the heart of it. It isn't that um, what is said is untrue as far as it goes, but it, it so often fails, you see, to confront men and women with the overwhelming reality of eternal life or everlasting destruction. So, so we have Christian messages about marriage and Christian messages about your money and Christian messages about your sex life and, and about how to, to uh, find emotional healing. All of those things which can be true. But none of them eternal. You've got to talk about God's message and God's message is about eternal things. I was uh, talking just Friday night with the Mick Snarum, retired pastor of the OPC. If you know Mick, if you met him once, you know him. He's just a bundle of energy. It's, a, it's just amazing. And, uh, and, and he came and just uh, uh, was commenting on the sermon uh, Friday night for, the, for uh, Good Friday. And um, particularly, he, he, he wanted to talk about the, the, the part where, where we had mentioned that the cross uh, is a sign in the world about the seriousness of sin. And, and Mick said something to me that I don't think I'll ever forget. He says, we got to get them lost before we can get them found. 
And that's true. We got, we got to talk about the reality of lostness. And people have, come to have to come awake to the truth of their lostness before they're ever going to experience the joy of being found. And he told me a story of the, just this past week. Uh, he and uh, Ethel were out for a walk, and uh, they saw their neighbor out working by the, uh, by the garage. And so they were, they were talking with him. And Mick said, he told me uh, that uh, just this week, he's been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And Mick said, I... I I said to him, I want you to imagine the worst possible experience that this cancer uh, can bring you. I I want you to think about the worst possible day that you're going to have as as you deal with this cancer. And I tell you that that experience and that day will be a banquet compared to the eternal wrath that you will experience if you don't get right with God. And um, they made their way home. And Mick said to me, I said, I asked, I asked my wife, do you think I was too hard on him? And, and um, if you know her, she says, yes, I think you maybe were. <clears throat> And so he went back the next day, and he said to his neighbor, was I, was I too hard on you? And his, and his neighbor said, no, that is exactly what I needed to hear. The world is more ready to hear the truth than the church is often willing to speak it. I wonder how many lost people never get serious about getting right with God because the church doesn't seem serious about the need to. You see, gospel preaching presses urgently into this spiritually blinded world the realities of eternal things, the reality of sin, the reality of a holy God, the reality of coming judgment. And we have to speak yet, you see, because people otherwise won't understand. People will think that the great crisis of their life is finding a job, finding a lover, finding a healing for an illness. They think that the crisis of the world is is poverty or lack of education or racism or diseases. And those are all genuine needs and, and heartbreaking concerns. But they are not the great crisis of humanity. The crisis of humanity is revealed right here that we are, by nature, Ninevites and judge is coming, that we've sinned against the holy God who created us, and we must and we will give an account to him on the last day. That's the message that Jonah has for the Ninevites. It's a message the church is constantly tempted to remove from the script. It sounds harsh. It sounds judgmental. It is judgmental. It's God's judgment on the world. Of course it's judgmental. God has a bone to pick, right, with his creation and with men and women made in his image. It's just true, you see, but it's a necessary truth if we're ever going to understand and and, and love the gospel. The gospel will not make sense to people it will seem insignificant or it will seem trite unless people are, are brought to an understanding of the real crisis of their life. Smith again says, the awful reality of the judgment of God is a banner headline without which the story of God's redeeming love would go unread. 
You see, we're not interested in redeeming love from God unless we understand judgment. If we don't understand judgment, we'll be interested in helping love. We'll be interested in, in the love that makes much of us, in the love that makes our lives easier. We'll be all about that love. And redeeming love will be somewhat interesting, but it's, it's not really what our heart hungers for. And yet, friends, this, this message that God gave Jonah, it's, it's not this sort of Old Testament angry God message. It's not a glitch in the otherwise positive news of Scripture. This is the message of the whole Bible, that men and women have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the message that John the Baptist had. If you remember, uh, you can read of it in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist went out saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, God is coming and you need to repent. Uh, Jesus had exactly the same message. Uh, G, uh, Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people were flocking to John the Baptist and gathering around Jesus. They were confessing their sins because judgment was a reality in their mind. And so John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples went out with the same message, the exactly same message. They're all preaching the message of Jonah. The king is coming. Judgment is at hand. Repent. And people do it now. 40 days is not a long time. 40 days. And God is going to overthrow Nineveh. And then we see this miraculous response. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. So, he, so here's what's happening. Jonah is preaching. They hear Jonah, and they believe God. By the power of God, the Ninevites become convinced that what this man, this strange man from, from far away, this Jewish man, that what he's saying, it, it's true. They're convinced it's true. And maybe they were originally just sort of curious, who is this guy, this babbler? What is he trying to say? And then as they listened, uh, the curiosity be becomes maybe mild concern. And then concern becomes conviction. And conviction becomes grief. And grief turns to despair. And, and there would be so many people, so many, so many uh, maybe even pastors, right, who would say, well, stop. Do you see what you're doing? You're making them feel awful. People are in panic. And that's, of course, the work of God. Waking people up. We're, not, we're talking about serious things. The judgment of God. And, and we find here in this text a wonderful um, illustration of, of how to escape the judgment of God. Because you find here the two parts of conversion, faith and repentance. Faith, they believed God. They, they, they took him at his word. What Jonah said, God's message, maybe they would even ask him, man, why are you saying these things? And Jonah would say, because God told me to say it. This isn't my message, it's God's message. This isn't Jonah's thoughts on, on Nineveh, this is God's divinely revealed message for this city. And so they believed God. Paul rejoices in this very 
uh, thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, another wicked city. And Paul says, we thank God continually for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The word of God. That's the marvel. That's the mystery of gospel preaching as, as just a normal, flawed failure of a, of a man, right? Takes the scripture and just presents what does God say? Then the people, by the moving of the Spirit, hear God. They hear God. And as they believe that message from the Word, as they believe it and repent, they are saved. And that's exactly what we see happening here. So the people believe and they repent. They, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least, even including the king. The word reaches the king. Sire, something's happening in the city. A man's been talking and people are weeping and there's, there's, this, there's this movement of fasting and sackcloth. It, 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 it's just contagious. And, and, the, and the king would say, well, what, what's, what's going on? Who is this guy? What's he saying? And, and so someone told him, this is what he's saying. And the king heard God and believed God. And the king ordains, decrees fasting, sackcloth, no food, no water. That, that's really stark. That's very... That's quite a response. It's, it's radical. Why would the king do that? You can't eat or drink? Do you know how hard that is? He does it because the king understands how serious it is. He understands the crisis. The living God has promised that he's going to overthrow this city in 40 days because of our wickedness. And if we don't repent, we will perish. That's the story. That's what happened. And the wonder is, as they, as they believed God and repented of their sin and, and turned from their sin, humbling themselves before the Lord, calling out, asking and begging for mercy, they were saved. When God saw what they did and, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God, the gracious God, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that men would turn and be saved, that God was gracious to this city, this wicked, wicked city, because they believed God and, and they repented. It's a fantastic story. But what does it have to do with Easter? Easter. Well, um, that's where we come to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus uses this story as a sign of his work and sign of his mission. Uh, Jesus is being challenged by some Jews, some, some of, the, some of the, the teachers, the leaders, the scribes, and, and they're saying, show us a sign. I mean, you're talking about who you are and, and why you've come, but give us, I mean, if this is the real thing, give us a sign. And Jesus responds to them, and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He's just, he's just exposing the fact that they're not asking for a sign because they want to believe. They're asking for a sign because they refuse to believe. But, he says, you're not going to get a sign except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Uh, we talked uh, last Sunday night, I believe, about the, this wonderful uh, similarity and yet difference between Jesus and Jonah. Uh, both men, Jesus and Jonah, coming under judgment from God because of sin. Jesus having none, Jonah being full of it. Both are thrown into the sea of God's just wrath. Both are resurrected with a message for the world. But the difference, of course, being Jesus is, is judge bearing our sin. Uh, Jesus buried three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And, and when Jesus came from that tomb, he had a message to proclaim to a wicked and lost world. Well, what is, what, what is the sign of Jonah exactly? Why is Jesus speaking it? You see, the, the, the reason Jesus mentions the sign of Jonah, the, the, the sign of Jonah, you see, is not just pointing to the truth of the resurrection. It's also pointing to the truth that the resurrected Jesus is now enthroned as the judge of heaven and earth. There's judgment in view here. That's, that's why Jesus in verse 41 talks immediately about the judgment day. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, someone great, something greater than Jonah is here. See, the, meser, the, the, the resurrection has this, this foreboding message for a lost world. You find it in Acts 17, where Paul is speaking um, to the city of Athens. Remember, he's come there, and it's a city full of idolatry, and, and people are saying, what does this babbler have to say? And so, so Paul gives a, a brief gospel message. No, but hear what he says in verse 30 of chapter 17. He's speaking to these pagans, and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul takes this, understands the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the sign of Jonah is a sign that God has installed, appointed a man to be the judge over all the world. And, and, and if you have any doubts about this, here's the proof. If you need assurance, here's the assurance. He raised him from the dead. Judgment is coming. It cannot be averted. It cannot be avoided. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world through this man. The proof is in the resurrection. You see, friends, the resurrection is not just something neat that happened to Jesus. It is something that has happened to the world. The, the, the judge has ascended his throne. A date has been fixed when the books are going to be opened. And every man and woman and child is going to be judged according to what they have done. You can say you don't believe that stuff. You can scoff. You can ridicule. Or you can just ignore this message. But one thing you cannot do, friend, is avoid that day. You cannot avoid that day. You're not going to escape that, that, that judge. And when you stand in his presence, you cannot say that God did not give you a warning and a proof he raised Jesus from the dead. 
Unless you think that that's just, a, again, a strange thing, it's exactly what Peter does in the first Christian message when he talks about the gospel in Acts chapter 2. And then he tells these men, I, I want you to know that God has raised up this Jesus whom you crucified as Lord and Christ. He's king. He's judge. And the men who heard it, the people who heard it, were stricken in their heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved? They came under conviction of sin, and Peter tells them, repent and believe. It's exactly the same message. You see, and it's precisely the reality of the crisis of coming judgment that makes the gospel so magnificent. There's there's just an instinct within us to... uh, judgment and doom and wrath... I mean, people are not going to receive that well. And you're, you're, you're right. Unless, you see, the, the, the Holy Spirit would take that word. And, and maybe people, if we really believed that this were true, maybe they would see something in our eyes or hear something in our voice, the way Mick says to this man, I promise you, The worst day that cancer can give you is a banquet compared to what you will receive eternally if you don't get right with God. Do we believe that message? And do we believe it so much that it doesn't really matter if people laugh? It doesn't matter if they scoff. Because we're just convinced that that's reality. And if we love them, and we believe the gospel, you see, we can say, that's the truth, but let me tell you another truth. That God has made a way, the very God whom you offended has made a way in Jesus Christ where you do not have to experience that reality. You see, the, the, the banner headline, judgment is coming, has given way to a new banner headline, salvation has come. That's the Christian message. That, that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we've, we've received a story about our resurrection to new life in him by faith. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, you who were dead in in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Friends, that's the Christian message. That people have sinned. And their sin stands uh, between them and a holy God and their sin, unless it is dealt with, will cast them for eternity into hell. But Jesus died having forgiven us all our trespasses. Second Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is magnificent news in a world of sinners. It's magnificent news for you and for me that God in Jesus Christ has miraculously, unexpectedly rescued you. It's like he rescued Jonah. He's rescued you like he's rescued the Ninevites. Rescued us from what we rightly deserve. And all because of sheer mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, you're wondering, I I know all this, but I've never experienced the power of it. I've never experienced the joy of it. What do I need to do? That's what the men uh, were asking Peter. And the answer is exactly the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn. Just recognize that the path that you're heading, even if it's a religious path, there's no life or health or joy and peace in religion. 
even conservative Reformed religion. Life and joy and health and peace, friends, comes from Jesus Christ, the living God who gave his life for sinners like you and me. And so, and so the text just calls, do you, do you believe this? Are you willing to just throw away all of what you might be hoping in? You, your, your prayers aren't going to save you. Your religion isn't going to save you. Your good intentions aren't going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. And are you willing to abandon everything else and throw yourself on him, begging God to save you from your sin in Jesus? Because if you do that, then the Bible has magnificent promises for you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The crisis of Easter, friends, can be avoided through the Christ of Easter. God so loved this world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This morning, I don't know where your heart is. God does. I just beg you, if you've been pretending to be a Christian and doing your, the best you know how, please, please, please stop pretending. It, it, you, you, eternity is right here. And you are rushing toward it 60 seconds a minute. And when you, and when you stand before King Jesus, the pretending will all fall away. And the truth will be exposed. Don't pretend. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your desperate need. Call out on the Lord Jesus Christ for you to be saved. And, 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 and ask God to save you the way it talks about in Scripture. So that, so that you get up like that, like that the paralyzed man. When, when Peter and John said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have in the name of Jesus, we, we give to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And, and he gets up and he's dancing and leaping. Pray for the joy of, the salvation, of your salvation to come to you like that. That you have such an overwhelming sense that you've been delivered from death, you've been delivered from judgment, that you have been brought to new life, you've passed from death to life, so that it changes the way you think about things. It changes how you feel about things. If you're a Christian struggling with despair and doubt and anxiety and grief, you can look to this living Jesus and every day remind yourself, God has rescued me from hell. God has made me a, a child, an eternal heir with Jesus Christ. I am so rich, it is in, it's, it's just embarrassing that God would do this for me, that God would attach his honor to my deliverance and if you have any doubt that he has, the empty grave you see is proof that he has. And that, that, that no matter what trials the Lord calls you to in this life, one day he's going to present you without spot and with great joy in the presence of God. That's, that's the significance of Easter. This is not just a happy story. This story is saturated with eternal significance, eternal weight for you depending on what you do with it. And God calls you today to believe, just to believe with your whole heart, believe by the power of God, throw yourself onto this great truth and be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, you break into the, the busyness of our life and the, the frustrations and 
the anxieties, uh, the grumbling. Lord, just the, 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 the truth of where we live, God, you break in with a message of eternal things. Oh, God, rescue us from our cynicism and our apathy. I pray that we would have a sense that we're, we're standing on the precipice of eternity that every one of us must soon die, every single one of us. And we will, we will come to that great judgment throne, either robed in the beautiful, glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ or robed in nothing but the rags of our self-righteousness. And oh Jesus, we want to be clothed on that day. We want to stand with your saints on that day. We want to be named with Jesus on that day. And, oh, God, in this life, then, we want to believe these things in a way that brings joy, even in the midst of grief, that brings deep satisfaction, even in the, in the face of loss, and that we're being people who are, are we're being transformed by the glory of God and the power of God through the Spirit and through the gospel. And so, Lord God, we beg your help. We thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace. The, the cross and the empty grave is proof. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us to meet Jesus with open arms, with, with, with bent knees, as we thank him forever for his great rescue of sinners like us. And, Father, if there's any here this morning who've never bowed the knee to Christ to to embrace him as Savior and Lord and, and receive full forgiveness of all sin. Oh, God, may this be the day, for you are the God of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the word this morning, singing, just rejoicing together by the Sea of Crystal as we think ahead to what God has for us in Jesus Christ. And then after that, uh, we're going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And I'd just like to invite anyone who wants to uh, come and join the choir. Uh, we'll have music. And so after, uh, after we sing by the Sea of Crystal, uh, make your way up and we'll have the benediction and we will uh, close with that great Hallelujah Chorus. Let's stand.